You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessing to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Fahim Nasser. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a late start to the show. I think, uh, mostly for myself, due to traffic conditions, uh, mostly to do with all that heat out there. We're just not used to it. Uh, drains blowing out, roads, road surfaces melting, all these things, because uh, we can't manage to you know, deal with 30-degree heat in this country. But that is life, I suppose, in the UK. I think it's better than uh, when it's snow, right? <laughs> yeah, at least we can deal with that, I suppose. Yeah. You know, we've got grit and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but uh, since we're so late into the show, uh, let's start. Uh, we've got our two topics, uh, usually. Uh, we're looking at population, the impact of negative growth, and uh, long COVID. So I suppose they're both to deal with. Um, well, they both impact us, definitely, you know, population, uh, and the impact of negative growth, and long COVID. You, know, you haven't suffered from long COVID? No, thankfully. Uh, you know, I mean, we're going to deal with this further on uh, in the second half of the show. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I've been double vaccinated and had the, the booster jab. Mm. But uh, I, I contracted COVID, I think most probably like uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah. And subsequently, I do exhibit, I don't exhibit you know, a lot of the symptoms. But one of the symptoms I do exhibit is this um, short term memory loss. It's kind of like mm. brain fog at times. So I don't know whether to attribute it to my you know, my age, <laughs> you know, or actually as uh, as being, a, you know, a, a, a true symptom of long COVID. But, uh, yeah, I find myself kind of like forgetting things, you know, just, you know, just really mm. silly little things, you know, yeah. walking out and thinking I haven't got my keys when my keys are in my hand. Are you sure it's not the whole weather? No, no, this is prior to the whole <laughs> weather, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll delve into that we'll delve further. Into that in the next but, uh, yeah, if you just kick us off with population, well, yeah, what, what are we looking at with the impact of negative growth, Nasser? Yeah, so um, today it marks the World Population Day. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, celebrated on the 11th of July. And, um, yeah, in, t- in 2011, the world reached a population of 7 billion. Wow. Um, and this year, the number will actually hit 8 billion, prompting, like, the attendant responses. So, like, um, it's... it's a, we're, we're discussing, like, you know, is it an impact of ne- negative growth? The, the day is cele- uh, celebrating human progress. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's the purpose of the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, to raise, aware of, uh, raise awareness of uh, about global population issues mm-hmm. um and then uh so i think that um th- when we know that, that that things are growing and, and i think w- what we're going to discuss a bit later is just how the different trends are um within world population and how different countries are dealing with it and how there are different like impacts of it um but yeah i, I think we can uh understand that a bit more further once you get some guests on as well Mm -hmm. yeah i mean if we look at it uh, i suppose the misconception is that actually um you know the population is growing Mm -hmm. uh it is actually forecast to grow but uh when you look at it more in detail as per country you Mm -hmm. see that there is uh kind of like different trends right? yeah different trends and some of them are in the negative uh spectrum of that trend uh say for instance china 
um, it's 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 facing actually a problem with its birth rate. Yeah. Uh, Japan has been long documented. Uh, even in Western um, Western countries such as Latvia, um, you know, you see these, uh, and I suppose it is a development of um, you know the human race as such that uh, you know people are living older or living yeah. longer. Um, technology and, and things. Yeah, yeah, technological innovations. Uh, and they've eased our lives and they, you know, have connected us to uh, more so than ever uh, in this global village that we live in. But um, I suppose, you know, is it actually a negative that, uh, you know, that there is this, this I suppose, this negative uh, or the negative impact of uh, population growth, like the, the actual world's population slowing down in that sense? Because I suppose the rationale would be that, you know, we have scarce resources, yeah. right? We have finite resources. So, so if the population is growing at an exponential rate and your, uh, your resources, uh, say in terms of your you know, the farming, are uh, only growing in an ath- arithmetic rate, mm. it's going to outstrip, right? Yeah. But uh, at what point do we pass that break even? And you know, we're going to delve into the Islamic side of that as well. Um, but... Obviously, with population shrinkage, there comes problems, and there's a host of issues, yeah. Um, and, you know, the two main ones with this are the high rates of immigration yeah. uh, and a actual declining birth rate. Now, in the Holy Quran, it's written, uh, he placed therein firm mountains rising about its surface and blessed it with abundance and provided therein its foods in proper measure in four days alike for all seekers. Now, this is chapter 41, verse 11 of the Holy Quran. Now, in interpreting this, uh, the commentary regarding this, this verse in the Holy Quran is that, you know, if we are alike uh, or want alike for all seekers, now this may signify that the food which God has provided in the earth uh, are equally accessible to all seekers who try to get them according to the laws of nature. Uh, therefore, the fear that the earth may not someday be able to grow sufficient food for the fast increasing population of the world is actually groundless. So that actually begs, I suppose, Nasser, the, the question, how do you distribute that food? Yeah. Um, so it's clearly like uh, there's an issue there. It's not like a matter of, oh, we don't have enough. Right? Yeah. So yeah. so it's a clearly um, a distribution issue. Yeah. So yeah how do we tackle that <laughs> yeah so Isn't i mean it is the sixty-four thousand dollar question <laughs> right. or whatever and it's i suppose one would say the inequity of that distribution mm. uh say for instance this morning i was just seeing on the on the news uh the situation currently in syria mm. uh that uh, russia had vetoed um i'm not sure if you you, you picked up on that bit of news nope. they had ve- vetoed um one of the i think one of the passages or one of the entry points into north i'm just kind of like thinking north of western syria mm. so it's one of the only uh, or the last rebel held stronghold but there's a camp there which uh i think 1.2 million displaced syrians are in that camp and uh, the un food uh, agencies have said now look you know if you close those borders and you veto uh the un's authorization to keep that route open how are those people going to survive so merely i mean i'm just 
yeah. you know, relating this uh, news item to yourself and uh, our listeners out there. Yeah. But doesn't that show how you can, or the poor distribution of food can affect people? It doesn't matter, you know, the fact that you know you've got 1.2 million refugees effectively yeah. in that area, but just by you know one superpower vetoing the right of the UN to actually use that entry point from Turkey into Syria, northern, northwestern Syria, you're going to affect the lives of over, well, minimum 1.2 million people, right? Yeah. Definitely. And it's just like, it just shows how like political decisions or, or just these these decisions that are made outside of uh, the actual day-to-day situations can impact people's access to something which is a basic right, right? Mm-hmm. Like something yeah, that you yeah. need to survive. It's not yeah. a luxury that you're missing out on. It, mm. it's, it's food and resources that mm. you need to survive. I mean, even if we don't look at it from an Islamic point of view, you know, the basic needs. I mean, we have needs and we have wants, but mm. the needs of a of a human being are to have food, warmth, and shelter yep. to survive, right? So if you are, I suppose, hijacking that food element, yep. then that's one of the three basic elements you need to survive. And just to be, you know, not even, <laughs> just to have a normal existence. Really, yeah, just, right? to, just to survive your day-to-day, to enough energy to get through the day, you know, how we can just, you know, j- during Ramadan as well, you can mm. you, you experience this, like, lack of food. And, like, you know, even in this weather, if you're, if you're dehydrated, like, the impact it has on just your day-to-day here imagine mm-hmm. that on a long-term basis exactly. and, I, and i was thinking that driving in you know i was thinking oh it's so hot right mm-hmm. and i was thinking but there's people out there that are dealing with this constantly like yeah, you know 24 7 24 7 without the resources that we have you know i had mm-hmm. air conditioning on in my car like Lucky you. <laughs> i had the windows open my air conditioning needs regassing <laughs> so there you go but yeah I, like exactly so you, you you get that disparity and mm. and um, yeah, it's just you can forget how grateful you can be, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, true. So let's let's jump into the numbers, yeah, because mm-hmm. this is, the, I suppose, the misconception or I wouldn't say fallacy regarding uh, the growth of world population. But you know, we think that it is gonna, it is going to grow, but and it is right. So you know, at best, it took hundreds of thousands of years for the world population to grow to one billion. Yeah. in number and then in just another 200 years or so it grew sevenfold uh, in 2011 the global population reached the 7 billion mark uh, it all it stands at almost 7.9 billion so let's say 8 billion yeah. uh, uh, in 2021 and it's expected to grow to around 8.5 billion in 2030 9.7 billion in 2050 and 10.9 billion in uh, 2100 I, I find it very hard to say that 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 that, that, <laughs> that year for instance right but 2100 now this dramatic growth has uh, been driven largely by increasing numbers of people surviving uh, you know surviving to a, re- a reproductive age yeah. and has been accompanied by major changes in fertility rates uh, increased urbanization and accelerating migration uh, but you see this migration, I think, is more from, say, for instance, uh, rural backgrounds or rural environments to cities, mm. right? Um, so these trends you know, do have far-reaching implications, not just for us currently, but for generations to come. Um, and in the recent past, you know, we've seen enormous changes in fertility rates and life expectancy, uh, obviously due to you know, the advances in, uh, in, in medical technology. 
uh, nowadays. Now, in the 1970s or the early uh, 1970s, women had, uh, on average, 4.5 children uh, each. Uh, by 2015, total fertility for the world had fallen to below 2.5 children per woman. Meanwhile, average global lifespans have risen from uh, 64.6 years. Uh, in the early 1990s to 72.6 years. So that's an increase of, what, six years? Yeah. Uh, in, what, 20 years? Yeah, in, in the space of 20 years. So although, uh, yeah, we're living longer, but actually we're having less children. Yeah. And that is, I suppose, the problem uh, in a nutshell currently. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to this, like the world is seeing like high levels of urbanization and accelerating migration. You know, 2007 was the first year in which people lived in urban areas than lived more in more people lived in urban areas than in rural areas. And 2000 uh, and by 2050, about 66 percent of the world's population will be living living in cities. Mm-hmm. So these these mega trends are having like far-reaching implications right and uh, they affect economic development employment income distribution poverty and social protections so they also affect efforts to ensure universal access to healthcare, education housing sanitation water food and energy to more sustainably address the needs of individuals policymakers must understand how people are living on the planet where they are and how old they are and how many people will come after them mm. you know to, to to make the policies for this you need to understand this and mm-hmm. and that's why this day they, they is there to build awareness of, of our progression and and you know what are the population issues because mm. how often do you sit there and think uh, you know how many people are there in the world you, d- you don't really do it yeah often, I, d- right? I don't really yeah that's not one of those things that i i i, I sit and ponder i've got right. to say because you are insulated in your little cocoon mm. of you know, your own life and how these external things happen. But you know, when you do see the news, like, say, for instance, the news item today regarding um, closing of the border or the vetoing of that border uh, closure um, in northern Syria, it affects a lot of people. Yeah. Right. Um, and to, uh, you know, not to their not to their. Uh, not to, in a positive way, but really to their detriment. And obviously, you know, we, we pointed this out right at the top of the uh, show hmm. regarding uh, population that, you know, although this is, uh, there's a global trend, but if we look at country by country, um, yeah, there are some countries where there aren't any issues with birth rates, but uh, there are countries which there, there there is an issue with a low fertility rate and a low birth rate. So, We've actually got a, a pre-recorded uh, interview with Dr. Zhang Peng, who is a senior research fellow at uh, Victoria University. And um, that pre-record or the, this, this interview is regarding actually the situation in China. Dr. Peng is a senior research fellow at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Dr. Peng. We are, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Peng, would you like to tell us about yourself and the work you do? Um, yeah, um, I'm a senior research fellow at uh, Center of Policy Studies, uh, Victoria University. 
Um, I'm working uh, at this center, uh, our center focused on the economic modeling. Uh, I'm uh, responding for the China uh, project, all the projects with China. Is, uh, I take care of all the projects with China and uh, include uh, the you know the research project and also uh, like modeling training and also um, uh, all the exchange students and the scholars. Yeah, that's all uh, involved with China. It's my responsibility. That's, yeah, thanks. Well, that is very good. Uh, China has the world's largest population, but China's population is about to shrink for the first time. What impact will this have on China and the world? Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, it's the first time, like you said, it's the first time China's population will stop growing and it starts to decline. Um, yeah, it's a, for the world, it's a very big news. Uh, but what's impact impact uh, for the for China and uh, also for the world? I think they have several uh, impact uh, at least. The first one is um, uh, the um, we have the negative population uh, population growth, and also we have negative labor force growth. And we, you know, and the labor force is one of the important uh, primary factor to uh, produce products. So if we have the uh, uh, declining labor force, it means China have to rely on rely more on productive improvement. Uh, that means technology and also capital to sustain its um, uh, economic growth. So this is the first uh, impact. And the second impact is uh, the labor cost we increase because we have the declining labor force and the labor will become uh, more expensive. That's why the labor cost will uh, increase, and this will um, uh, move uh, move out, uh, you know, low margin and uh, um, uh, labor intensive um, factors. Uh, no, 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 no labor intensive uh, factories uh, out of China and into the countries where they have more uh, cheaper labor, such as Indonesia and uh, Vietnam or like uh, uh, India or Sri Lanka or those countries. And the third one is that China have to reallocate its uh, very, uh, you know, more, more valuable resources to the like health, medical service, and the long aged care service to meet the demand for the increasing elder population. Because not only the population size will decline, and um, but meanwhile the population structure will become older. We have more old people um, in China. So in that case, and old people need more aged uh, care service and also medical and health service. Uh, this is the, uh, yeah, uh, the effect I think uh, for China and for the uh, right of the <laughs> the um, other country. I think yeah, because China we have you know like the less developed. Sorry, I think it's using this question is enough for the current moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's enough. That's very well done. Asia and Europe are home to some of the world's oldest populations. What are the some economic impacts of population aging in China? Okay, I think, uh, um, yeah, this is uh, related with the first question. I think, uh, um, uh, the second question, you know, uh, just the question we answered, you know, and uh, yeah, this yeah. question about what effect on Europe or Asia. Uh, first, I think, uh, um, China, or you know, in the past several years or past maybe uh, several decades, you know, have more, a lot of Chinese maybe um, um, immigrant to other country. Um, yeah, include Europe and also maybe uh, like Australia, you know, Canada, some countries. But I think with the 
uh, China's uh, China population began to decline, and also China's population is starting aging. It's already high, um, happening when China's population is become old. I think maybe there will be less, you know, population immigrated from out of from China. This is a uh, the long longer term. So this is one in, one effect on other country. And the second one is as we mentioned, uh, um, because the low margin and uh, labor intensive um, um, sectors we move out of China and uh, currently you know a lot of countries rely on China's uh, manufactured goods import a lot of manufactured goods from China but gradually with this um, um, labor intensive manufactured goods move out China maybe they also the import um, uh, uh, for this uh, the this country import also we move for maybe uh, to other countries, you know, the new manufacturing sectors, um, new ma manufacturing centers. And also, but meanwhile, China um, is uh, the low margin and the labor intensive manufacturing maybe move out, but China now may, may uh, we more focus on the high tech and the high tech to intensive products. Still, I think other countries will rely on China's is high tech and the high value added products. Uh, this I think this is what uh, will happen in the future. So how are some ways to resolve this population decline and aging in low fertility rate countries? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Uh, first, I would like to say, um, you know, this uh, fertility decline and population, uh, population aging uh, will happen more or less, you know, uh, more or less uh, happening all over the world. But of course, for some country like Africa, maybe the population is still growing and also maybe uh, we, we cannot see a population aging not yet. But in the in the longer term, uh, yeah, this fertility decline will happen in all of the world. So, but for current moment, so what we can do to, uh, you know, for the, if the country country is suffering the low fertility rate and also population aging, I think a three area we can do. The first one is, um, yeah, uh, continue to encourage, um, continue to encourage uh, fertility increase. Uh, you know, the or the government need to continue to have the policies to encourage um, the couples have um, have children. Um, yeah, I think in Asia and also a lot of European country, European country, they also already have uh, you know. Um, fertility encouragement policy for many years. Of course, the effect of these policies is very limited. But if without this policy, the fertility will decline further. So that's why it's very important to continue uh, to have these uh, policies and uh, to support um, people have more children. So this is the one. And the second uh, thing we can do is um, uh, for the country who have the very low uh, retirement rate, your uh, retirement age, we think we, ha we have to uh, increase the retirement age. For example, in China, uh, the retirement age for men is 60 years old and for women is 55. For some women, you know, some female workers is even early, 50 years old, they will have, they, they will retire. So um, because the life expectancy is has re, uh, increasing very fast in China, it's now nearly 80 years old, but people will retire at 50. So it's quite, it's very early. So increasing the retirement uh, age is a uh, second way can, um, can, uh, 
can just uh, in short term to um to uh, to help um, mitigate the negative effect of the declining um, population and also age the population. The second way and the third way, of course, is we have to rely on the productivity improvement and also rely on the technology improvement to sustain the economic growth. And so that's why the government should invest more on human capital, invest more on education. So this is the third way we think, um, yeah, all the government um, should encourage all the government to do. Yeah, thank you. Okay, uh, you just mentioned one of the ways is to uh, introduce a fertility. So China has introduced a third child policy. Why are couples ignoring this governmental pleas? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, in China, we have one child policy since the 1980s. And uh, then, um, yeah, this policy quite su successful, but with the fertility rate that can, can continue to decline, governments began to encourage um, people to have more children. So since 2016, um, yeah, uh, Chinese government already relaxed the one-child policy, encourage people to have more children. And since last year, um, we have this three-child policy, you know, the government already started this policy, but uh, the response is not that, uh, um, very, uh, you know, not what uh, the government expected, you know. And the reason, there are many reasons. I think the first reason is uh, a living cost. It's a very a living cost increasing very fast in China, especially the housing price. And in the big city, the house price become very expensive. So if I have more children, means a very burden for them. Um, because of this increasing living cost. It is the first reason. Second reason is education cost. In China, in the tradition, parents um, put high expectation on their children and they like to invest a lot on children's education. So and with if uh, about the education, uh, tuition fee, everything become very expensive. So if they are, if the family have more children, that means they have need to invest more on the education and this plus the living cost, they think this is uh, very difficult for them to um uh, to afford to have more children. And uh, the third reason is uh, related with the uh, um I think uh, with the labor force participant rate of the female. You know, in China, female labor force participant is very high in nearly eighty percent. That means eighty percent of women they uh, they they involve they actively involve in the labor market. They are actively working. So if uh, um, you you know a woman with this high labor force participant rate and if they have more children this means their um the opportunity cost for having more children is very high for them so this is a third reason i think i also can give you another reason related with uh, uh, the women's labor force participant rate uh, in, uh, in 1999, Chinese government um, have this uh, higher education expansion policy. So uh, since that time, women's um, higher education enrollment uh, increased very fast. Uh, and in all the all levels of higher education, women's um, um, high education enrollment uh, is higher than males. And that means um, yeah, more and more and more women um, began to enroll in for the higher education. Um, with this higher education enrollment rate, in one hand, they will delay women's marriage age. And in another hand, we increase their um, their um, opportunity cost to have more children. That's why I think of, from all above the reasons, that's why, um, you know, the 
or the the public, you know, that responds for government's three children policy is not that uh, uh, very positive as the government. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. So we just heard a piece regarding the, the problems of uh, uh, population or negative population growth in China. Um, and the, I suppose the thing is, Fahim, right, that uh, when we look at it, it, it does actually contrast because you know, some countries are having problems whilst others aren't. Yeah, and and it seems to be like most of the fastest growing populations are found, you know, in the in the group of least developed countries, mm-hmm. which collectively grew at a, around two point four percent annually between two thousand and twenty twenty. So during the next twenty years, the world's population will continue to increase every year, adding approximately one point four billion people to wow. reach an estimated 9.2 billion people by 2040 Mm -hmm. but the rate of population growth will slow in all regions so that's a big number there (laughs) it certainly is yeah and um yeah so population growth in most of asia will decline quickly and after 2040 the population will begin to contract although india's population growth is slowing, it will still overtake China as the world's most populous country around 2027. Um, as as birth rates remain low and, and the median age rises, most developed and, and a handful of emerging economies will see their populations peak and then start to shrink by 2040, including China, Japan, Russia and many European countries. Mm. And in contrast to that, sub-Saharan Africa will account for around two-thirds of global population growth and is poised to nearly double its current population by 2050, pretending extensive uh, strains on infrastructure, education and healthcare. Mm. And, and, you know, some people argue that the population is increasing and this has led to um, poverty. This is not true, as, as, as the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mayalabiya's helper, said... I should mention by way of example how the founder of Islam, Hazrat Muhammad وسلم, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, tackled a financial crisis and addressed a shortage of food. Once there was a famine and he ordered each person to bring forth whatever was in their homes and they duly obliged. Then all the food was distributed equi- equitably amongst the entire population so that no one should be left hungry. This was the equitable treatment or that the holy founder of Islam, peace be and blessings of Allah be upon him, established in order to discharge the rights of others and remove unrest. Mm. And, and I suppose that, that goes to what we were saying earlier on. It's not the fact that we don't have enough food exactly. and resources in the world to feed everybody. It's that distribution. Mm. And to speak more about this, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, Imam Rabib Mirza. Uh, As-salamu Peace and blessings well, be upon you, Imam Rabib. How are you? Peace be upon all of you. And uh, very good, and Zakhla, for having me once again on the show. Uh, always a pleasure, uh, Imam Rabib. Um, so we're talking about population. Now, uh, you know, what does Islam say about the sustainability of you know, population growth? Well, <clears throat> fundamentally, um, and also... Uh, the uh, I believe it was uh, the co-host as well that um, presented an excerpt 
of uh, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Ahmad. So fundamentally, with regards to sustainability, mm-hmm. I mean, if we were to just break it down very simply, you know, sustainability is you know meeting our own needs um, without actually compromising the ability of uh, future generations to meet their own needs. And, uh, you know, in addition to this, there's also the matter of natural resources um, and also we need social and economic resources. So the fact of the matter is that Islam has given a very comprehensive guideline and guidance regarding sustainability. You see, the, the fact of the matter is that once, uh, if my memory serves correct, um, Hazrat Umar, mm-hmm. um, there's an incident regarding him, and this has also been quoted by the Promised Messiah, Salam, that uh, once there was uh, a person, um, and Hazrat Umar said to him that, you know, you should uh, plant uh, a tree. And he said to Hazrat Umar that, what's the need to do so? And Hazrat Umar said that, look, you are of old age, and because of your experiences, um, you are able to help other people, you are able to pass down your experiences to them. And the old man understood from this uh, sort of uh, parallel that Hazrat Umar drew that by growing a tree um, or trees, the future generations will also be able to um, get some sort of sustenance from that and they'll mm-hmm. also be able to reap of the benefits from that. And that's why even now we see that His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masurah, especially um, over the past decade or so, where he's been warning um, the major powers, politicians, world leaders, that we should not um, be the culprits of World War Three. In other words, that if World War Three does happen, then we are actually destroying the future mm-hmm. uh, for our generations. And the reason is that, God forbid, if a nuclear bomb or an atom bomb were to be dropped, we know the implications um, and the disabilities that come about from it. I mean, Hiroshima and, mm-hmm. and Nagasaki, they, they're known to everybody about the disabilities or the deformations. Um, that have been born within the people. So His Holiness has mentioned that, look, it is our responsibility because our children will hold us to account that, look, our elders, they did not stop World War Three, and we're having to suffer because of their insolence or their stupidity. Mm, selfishness. So, and selfishness, absolutely, and, and egotism, if you want to mm-hmm. go even further. So the fact of the matter is that Islam has always beautifully enshrined within its teachings that you should essentially try to ensure that your future generations, you know, their needs are safe, uh, not not only um, physically, but even spiritually. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many times um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his caliphs, the promised Messiah and his caliphs, they always would remind their followers remind their members that you should pray for your children as well. 
And the reason for this is because the prayers of the parents are heard for their children. So if this is the state in the spiritual realm, then of course we should ensure that we are able to benefit our children in the physical realm as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that's really interesting. So to to maintain sustainable development, do you, do you feel like you know we need to control human population as well? I think <clears throat> with regards to sustainable development, I don't believe that um, there needs to be uh, a very de- uh, decisive um, way of controlling the human population. And the reason I say this is that I'll just give one example. When China <clears throat> uh, had the concept of um, the one-child policy, mm-hmm. Um, we know that there were great uh, implications, uh, negative implications about this. And the reason I say this is that because a lot of the uh, uh, analysts, when they observed what the outcome of this one-child policy was, one, they found that there were many different, um, you know, parents that had more than one children, but they were blacklisted. And, of course, then they could not get the benefit of uh, education and so on and so forth. That's one of the things that came out of uh, of this. The other, even more um, negative impact that it had on society at large is that, for example, if the one-child policy is integrated, let's say, in every society, then after a few years there will be no nobody to take care of the elderly people of that society and that's that's the issue that's the underlying or the underpinning issue here mm. because there's a four to one uh, problem that they they call it so for example let's say uh, you know a girl uh, there's a husband and wife so the husband will have to take care of his parents and the wife will have to take care of her parents but equally they'll have to share the burden of taking care of each other's parents as well Mm-hmm. So and then on top of that they have their own children so their children will have to take care of their parents and their grandparents as well as they have the 421 so what i'm trying to say is that there are difficulties in limiting um, the human population and that's why we know that uh, out of uh, you know after some time then china has um you know uh, yeah they scrapped the one one they, they child scrapped, policy they scrapped mm. the one child policy because of the negative implications mm. that it's having and then after so many years there's going to be a huge rise in in elderly people and you know they may not be able to physically uh, exert um you know their their capabilities and abilities into doing the hard labor mm-hmm. uh, so there's there's a lot of different issues and a lot of different problems um that comes about with such policies mm. so that's why there should not be a sort of as i say decisive control on the human population but <clears throat> to a you know certain degree where it's possible and if there is a need um it can be done but of course, you cannot limit somebody to say that, okay, you should have one child or two children or three children. That's not the case. Every society has different you know, means and mm. every society has 
different things that they mm. I need think to look at in different circumstances. I think also, Ruby, uh, one of the points, one of the negative uh, aspects of the one-child policy that China had in the late 80s was uh, those two points that you pointed out already, but also the fact that culturally um, a lot there was a lot of infanticide. Uh, female children um, do not bear their family name. So if uh, you were to give birth to a female child, you would either, you know, at best, um, you know, give them off to an orphanage or, you know, at worst, actually, you know, do away with them. So the repercussions of not actually having that many females, I think China has seen that policy come home to roost in a negative way now. So we're talking about 20 years down the line from the initiation of this policy. And uh, we see that the demographic in China is that it's the hugely skewed towards males as opposed vis-a-vis uh, -vis to females. So, you know, that's that is the problem when I suppose, you know, humans try to uh, do God's work or God's bidding. And uh, we can never do that. But moving on. You know, the, the world's poorest countries or less developed countries have, you know, the fastest growing populations currently. However, population is declining in the more developed, I suppose, richer economies of the West. I mean, what solution does Islam propose to, to for this scenario? Well, <clears throat> again, as, as I mentioned, um, that at, at the end of the day, every society, every nation um, they have their own circumstances, uh, they have their own targets that they need to achieve. But with regards to, you know, the world's poorest countries, um, having the world's fastest growing population and uh, the population is declining within the rich economies, we are also seeing, um, you know, very unfortunately as well, that there is mismanagement of uh, resources as well. So it's it's very unfortunate that within those poor countries where there's a uh, growing population, their you know their uh, their needs are not being met. Mm -hmm. And here we see that in the richer societies, the needs are being are being met, but sometimes, or I should say, a lot of the times, there's a wastage of those resources. So many times we've seen on the. TV here that there's so many documentaries about certain supermarkets and and grocery stores. Um, if uh, something, if if a, if a item is goes out of date by let's just let's say one or two days, mm -hmm. you know it's thrown into the bin. Mm. Whereas those items they can be replenished as such and they can be used as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not saying that people should be given rotten food. But where there is um, a means of, uh, you know, a few days, um, then it should not be thrown because, again, this is also uh, um, this is a waste of resources. Hmm. It's, a, it's a waste of resources. And it's also um, supplementing, we should say, the wastage of food mm -hmm. within society. So that's why Islam has, Islam has first and foremost thought that Yes, you may eat and you may drink, but do not do it excessively. Mm -hmm. Do not waste the food. And, of course, this is a general general instruction, but if you amplify it to a national level and then international level, mm -hmm. it becomes, you know, it, it echoes that message. 
and it echoes that message absolutely and mm. it manages that problem that there is this this management there's no uh, equal divide i mean the resources uh, for example the one uh, african country um i was told by someone that they have around 32 natural resources mm-hmm. but because of certain major powers um including uh, very unfortunately including the united nations mm-hmm. that country is is living on scraps right so where where you know where's the money um going uh, for all those natural resources mm-hmm. why are people living in poverty why isn't that money or the revenue of those resources being shared, shared with those people mm. so it's you know truly it's it's due to the major powers and their the mismanagement and the distribu- greed. distribution isn't it really and and um, fundamentally it's about the greed as well as mm. so i think that islam um i do not say i think but islam has categorically stated that <coughs> to <coughs> every single nation that do not cast your eyes on the resources of other nations because what happens greed develops mm-hmm. and then when greed develops we know that greed is such a thing that it eats everything in its way mm-hmm. it's like a, a termite or a cancer whatever you want to call it but it destroys everything in its path so that's why islam has given this scenario and has proposed sorry um this injunction this guideline this guideline that everything needs to be calculated and it needs to be shared out in proportion mm. yeah speaking speaking of islam uh, imam rabi uh, we have one final question for you you know um, it's mentioned that uh, one of the reasons for population dec- decline is is that you know families are more focused on getting educated on on improving their living standards and and their careers what is islam's perspective on this and is the population decline valid during you know these increased economic prices <clears throat> well with regards to <coughs> are you okay imam rabi yeah yeah sorry just <laughs> a little bit of a cough <clears throat> you see with regards to um islam's perspective um on on this specific topic um the fact of the matter is that if one of the reasons for the population decline is that families are becoming more educated and they're working towards improving their careers and living standards again this is each and every person's individual um you know circumstances this is their own choice so islam has never said to a person um you know that you need to uh, have 6 7 8 children it is up to obviously the family unit the husband and wife to decide how many children they want but these things you know education and um having more focus on the careers and the living standards this should not be uh, a fundamental reason for people to not have uh, families uh, at the end of the day unfortunately um even though we're living in the 21st century but the family units themselves are on a decrease as well and people are you know they're going into um uh, the I'm, i'm forgetting the specific term but you know they're going into a partner relationships where they're not married um but they're living together as partners 
Now, that itself has a very detrimental effect upon the family unit as well. And some other problems can ensue by these things. So what I mean to say is that if a person desires to have a family, then education and his career should never come in his way. But everybody has their own circumstances to look at. Everybody knows their own circumstances. Everybody has different circumstances that, you know, or objectives that they work towards. But Islam has fundamentally said, and this is why the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, even mentioned that to get married is part of my uh, sunnites, it's part of, you know, my practice. And if a person does not do it, then he's not for me. And the reason why he said this is because we know that uh, apart from, um, you know, procreation, marriage is a very sacred institution. It saves God, it saves God's man from um, moral indecencies and uh, immoralities and other various different vulgar types of things. So that's the the beauty about marriage, and this is why in the 21st century, this very holy institution of marriage, it's being overlooked, and people are going into other sorts of family units. So that sacredness, that needs to be established again. And with regards to um, population decline, is it valid during increased economic prices? Islam has also mentioned uh, in one place in the Holy Quran that, and especially this is addressing the parents, that do not slay or kill your children just on the basis of fear of um, wealth or, or fear of poverty. Because fundamentally, God Almighty is the one that provides everything. But of course, as we know that if there are certain circumstances um, where you do have a large family unit and an economic crisis uh, does happen at that time it does not mean that you go on you Mm -hmm. know you kill your children you know it doesn't one in one sense it means obviously to not physically go and kill your children as uh, some people do they do infanticide or they actually go and, and kill their children but it also means that you know don't don't harm them in in any way sometimes very very sadly um people sell their children i mean into into various uh, you know things and it's it's really sad to hear such stories that parents do this um out of uh, you know poverty and and uh, actual they do it um because they physically do not have the resources or the wealth to feed themselves Mm. But Islam has has given that message that always remember that God Almighty is Ar Razak. He is the provider. Yeah. So pray to Him, and He will definitely answer you. He will definitely help you. Um, so that's the the fundamental teachings of Islam mm-hmm. with regards to the family unit, and um, you know whether population decline is valid in uh, mm-hmm. economic. Well, uh, Imam Rabi Meza, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us this afternoon and giving us your pearls of wisdom, as usually. Fundamentally sound. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Peace and blessings be upon you, Ravid. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah. 0208 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Uh, if you have a view, share it with us. Uh, let us know exactly what you think. 
Um, but just to conclude this, because we're coming up to the five o'clock news, um, I suppose, you know, as the Earth's population continues to grow or shrink at various rates in regions around the world, issues of overpopulation, population decline, and the economic ramifications that they bring are sure to be on the minds uh, of all those citizens and policymakers and businesses alike. Um, one supposes that it's key for countries to carefully examine the causes and impacts of their population growth rates before implementing any policies uh, to address it. Now, according to the WHO of the United Nations, the Earth contains seven times more food than the world population. So the problem is unfair distribution, wars and injustice on many levels. But these wars and natural disasters are a sign that a prophet in the form of giving glad tidings and warning mankind has actually arrived. Join us after this, uh, the 5 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Fahim Nasir. Nasir. Nasir, yeah. Nasir. Yeah. Apologies. I'm just such a such a greenhorn, such a beginner <laughs> at this, really. Um, so let's jump into our next topic of the day, which is long COVID. Um, and is it a disability? I mean, a tribunal has yeah. found or has... Um, I suppose adjudicated in the favour of a claimant that uh, it will be uh, classed as a disability. As a disability yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and and you know, with two million people in the UK now living with long COVID, uh, many of whom are struggling to get help. Like, how how do we? They think that this ruling may affect people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, because I can see it from both sides of the mm. coin, right? Employers now are really scared hmm. because you could just say, look, if you have some, I suppose, uh, verification that you have caught long COVID, or sorry, you have caught COVID yeah. initially, um, and because of the symptoms, to my understanding, and this will be clarified with our guests later on uh, in the topic or in the show, that the symptoms of long COVID are exactly the same symptoms hmm. as COVID itself except that uh, you exhibit them so many weeks after you've had the initial um, virus. Yes, yeah, a l- length of time issue, issue rather yeah, than Yeah, it's, it's a time issue. Yeah. But the symptoms remain the same. Yeah. So as an employer, you know, if someone has caught COVID and then they say, look, you know what, I can't get out of bed. To tell you the truth, that doesn't sound... I mean, as an employer, like, well, what are you talking about? You yeah. can't get out of bed. Yeah. It's, it's it's a strange one. Right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. a strange one, right? Because you know people can claim it so easily. I think a so lot of people use excuse, it to get right? out of meeting with each other. Even yeah, these exactly. days, you know, like oh, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I've, I've just tested positive. Yeah. yeah. So for those who want to actually use it as an excuse, it's mm. a it's a it's it's like the Willy Wonka golden ticket, yeah. right? For you getting out of work, it's like no, I can't I can't yeah. lock up because you know I had COVID. And I'm yeah. suffering from long COVID. And I'm not belittling this, yeah. but there is an issue. It's like, how do we really give it a classification? Although this was, th- this was not a high court judgment. This was a employment tribunal um, uh, and finding in, in, in favor of the claimant. Definitely. And, and you're not belittling it because the thing is, it, it's, 
it's going to be difficult to to because you want the people who are actually suffering and actually mm-hmm. being impacted to get the help that they exactly. need, right? It's, exactly. it's it's not like that, that we don't want people to get the help, but it's very difficult to understand mm-hmm. who needs the help and who doesn't. I right? mean, I think you came up with the expression when we were like discussing this uh, prior to the the show beginning that yeah, it's not one size fits all. Yeah. All right. Um, and see how I've just kind of hijacked Fahim's <laughs> phrase there. I'm very good at that. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 totally correct for this. Like not, not one size fits all. And uh, I was just saying to Fahim that actually I'm suffering, and I think one of the the symptoms that I'm suffering from is short term memory loss, a brain fog. Hmm. Um, and a, an example of this was that I was calling Fahim. Nasser, right? <laughs> Although he told me that that was his surname. So, you know, um, but maybe I'm just losing my, my marbles nowadays. You know, I am 54. But um, in Islam, you know, Islam has always emphasized the importance of taking care of the vulnerable in mm. society, now, including the weak and disabled. Now, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty even grants leniency to those who are disabled in regard to certain matters. Uh, now, in chapter 4, verse 96, it states, those of the believers who sit still accept the disabled ones and those who strive in the cause of Allah with their wealth and their person are not equal. So it's, it's stipulated that yeah. there is, um, you know, a, I suppose, um, a dispensation for those who are disabled. Yeah, and it is very clear, right? It's it's not like it's it's down to interpretation. It's very clear that you know, oh, yeah. accepting the disabled ones and, and you know, it, it makes that... Um, What's the, what's the word uh, allowance essentially for, for mm-hmm. people and and you know it's it's important and you know with disease prevention and, and previous p- epidemics it's like COVID nineteen is isn't something that's new uh, mm-hmm. in the sense of of uh, mass illness spreading mm-hmm. right we've we've the UK has experienced a number of pandemics and epidemics over the years and and one of the one of the major ones was mmr mm-hmm. which uh, for anyone who who doesn't know uh, stands for measles mumps and rubella um measles is a highly infectious viral disease which uh, can lead to complications such as pneumonia and encephalitis um encephalitis, encephalitis. I'll help um, you out there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so you definitely don't have the brain fog, do you? <laughs> no, not for that one. Um, inflammation of the brain, essentially. Um, it can also damage and suppress the whole immune system. Uh, and this means that people who have had measles are more likely to catch other infectious diseases. This effect can last for as much as three years after they recover from measles. Mm. And in high-income regions of the world, such as uh, Western Europe, measles causes death in about one in 5,000 cases. Uh, but as as many as one in 100 will die in the poorest regions of the world. So there is that disparity. Now, in 2017, global measles deaths rose by over 20% to 110,000 deaths. Uh, that's over 300 deaths a day. Now, this increase was due to gaps in vaccination coverage. Now, since 1990, when measles killed uh, 872,000 people, it's estimated that over one in five children, uh, of sorry, one in uh, five of all child deaths averted have been due to measles vaccination. Now, since measles vaccines uh, were introduced in the UK in 1968, Public Health England estimates that 20 million measles cases and 4,500 deaths have been averted in the UK. Now, 
much like how experts currently say we have to learn to live alongside COVID, there are many other diseases like the MMR or like MMR, uh, which were previously life-threatening and we now manage with vaccines and other advances in medicine. Now, vaccines are a key proponent in managing these diseases from spreading. Now, in recent years, the majority of measles cases have been in people who are not vaccinated, especially young people aged 15 and over uh, who have missed out on MMR vaccinations when they were younger. About 30 percent of those infected have been acquitted, uh, have been admitted to hospital. And, you know, when we're talking about MMR, you know, the name Andrew Wakefield, I don't know if you, you're, you're familiar with Andrew Wakefield. So he 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 um had a report he he made a report saying that the mmr uh, vaccine was linked to autism hmm. and because of that it spread like wildfire yep. so a lot of obviously lot you of know news. a lot of people yeah. kind of like uh, didn't want their kids to be um vaccinated with the mmr vaccine yeah. uh and his report subsequently was thrown out by i think the british medical journal hmm. right uh the lancet so, you know, it's things like that which really do, I suppose, undermine uh, people's, I suppose, confidence and trust yeah. in the authorities. But to speak more about uh, this and long COVID, we're actually joined by our first guest of the day regarding this. This is Dr. Taseen Khan, who is a GP and senior clinical advisor at NHS London. Peace and blessings be upon you. Oh, I've got the wrong button there. Peace and um, blessings be upon you. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today, Tassine. How are you? Uh, sounds good. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, hope you're well as well. Thanks for having me back on. No, no, no. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So, uh, you, were t- we, you know, I've just kind of touched on the MMR vaccination. Now, can you tell us about the new childhood uh, immunisation campaign that the NHS is launching regarding this? Yeah, so I mean, you, you introduced the uh, subject really well. That that we are worried about routine childhood illnesses, mm-hmm. diseases that really we shouldn't be um, experiencing, uh, because there's effective vaccinations such as the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination, the MMR jab, uh, that helps prevent outbreaks of measles. Um, now, in 2018-19, in near where I work in in Hackney, there was a large measles outbreak affecting around four to 500 children. Um, And that was because the vaccination uptake had gone um, really lower than it should be uh, to help then uh, to protect the population from fighting uh, any sort of viruses that take hold. And we're now at even worse uh, vaccination uptake uh, from where we were at that point. So uh, can, we can, are really worried about. Yeah, can, can I interject then uh, to see what, why is that then? Because it's not as if, you know, we haven't had. I mean, since '68 was the first uh, um, MMR jab, right? So why, you know, why have we seen this uh, decrease in vaccination uptake? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on it um, in the previous um, conversation around uh, confidence. So we know that Andrew Wakefield. Mm-hmm. research in the 1990s which has now been totally unproved. debunked it's been mm-hmm. he's been debunked he's been struck off as, as a doctor mm-hmm. and um you know there's been countless studies subsequently uh, testing uh, the vaccine uh, and its side effects and it's shown that these vaccines are all safe and effective and there's no link to autism so i think 
things like that have uh, have not helped. So they've undermined confidence, as you, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also there's competing priorities. I think we've just been through a pandemic and people are busy and actually getting their children to uh, a GP surgery to be vaccinated is also another thing uh, that many busy parents have to do. So sometimes it's just complacency and uh, mm-hmm. so people haven't got around to it. Mm. So I'd urge uh, parents that are late uh, or, or have um, children that are late for their vaccinations to call their GPs. And then sometimes it's also convenient. So making sure that the vaccinations are close by. So actually, uh, people that live closer to vaccination centres, we know that their vaccination uptake is higher. So we're trying to really boost uh, as many GP surgeries and other community centres, certainly where I'm working in London, we're actually starting to offer it now in children's centres as well. Mm. So that actually it's most accessible more, for parents. More, more available. Exactly, mm. yeah. Mm. So, Dr. Tassin, um could, could you elaborate for us and, and you know for our listeners what is the importance of vaccinations to to both individuals and uh, as a society as a whole yeah i mean i think again you mentioned it but um we know that vaccinations are the second most effective public health interventions for human health um in the whole of history so the first thing that, that really where humans advanced in public health intervention was clean water and sanitation. Mm-hmm. And that helped reduce the incidence of serious infectious diseases. And then after that, vaccinations is the second, second most um, effective intervention to help protect us against disease. So um, it really, as you know, we, there's some illnesses like polio, for example, that used to, in this country in the 40s and 50s, used to affect uh, people. We don't hear about that anymore in this country, thankfully, although there is a caveat to that, and I'll mention that uh, a bit later. And it's because of the power of vaccination that's helped protect both individuals, but also it contributes to what we call herd immunity. So we know, for example, for the MMR jab, um, that actually having a coverage of 95% uh, uptake uh, helps to keep the virus at bay. And so you're actually helping to protect others. So with MMR, there's a minority of children that can't have it, such as those who have got chemotherapy, who are on chemotherapy. Um, and so actually it relies on others around them to be protected. So by vaccinating yourself, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're family your community and that's that's why i think it's it's um you know it's really important that people that haven't been vaccinated go ahead and uh, and do that particularly if they're overdue mm. so you know tazine would it, or is there a possibility uh that vaccinations say for instance you know you're, you're talking about mmr but for instance for covid uh will become required and you know in terms of like Say uh, we have for the elderly uh, a booster jab uh, during winter for influenza. Would, would, is that the kind of like way we're, we're trending towards uh, in terms of COVID? I mean, to COVID, I mean, it, it's a bit of an uncertainty. We, we are still in a pandemic phase, even though the restrictions have eased and it feels like life is back to normal. There's still in ever increasing infections, in fact, record breaking infections. And what we don't know with COVID is what's next. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, it, what we're offering, for example, in the autumn is a booster for those people that are most vulnerable. Uh, so those um, who have got underlying health conditions um, and 
are most at risk of serious COVID infection. So it probably won't be offered to younger people. Um, it'll be targeted at those who are most at risk. And that's the same principle with the spring booster that, that we offered uh, over the past couple of months, where those people who are most at risk of serious disease and death um, are offered it. So it, we're yet to determine what kind of a pattern this will take, whether it will be carry on being an autumn and a spring offer, or whether there'll be just one booster that might be combined with the flu. But I think we're, we're probably at least a couple of years off knowing what pattern COVID will take. So for now, the message is that if you've been invited for either your spring booster or your autumn booster, or in fact, if you haven't had your COVID vaccine at all yet, using the first dose, and you've been offered it, then please go ahead and have the, the dose as soon as possible. It's never too late. And actually, what it will do is it will protect you from any future variant. So mm -hmm. what we we were lucky with, uh, in some ways, uh, with Omicron, because on the whole, although it's caused serious disease, most cases have people have managed um, symptoms at home or not requiring oxygen. Mm -hmm. We don't have that security for the next variant. So mm -hmm. it might actually be that it's a lot um, more dangerous. And actually um, having the vaccination now will be an insurance to help protect yourself in the future in case of a new variant uh, emerging in the next few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you've touched on it a bit, but I think, you know, could you just elaborate more on why is it important for the public to be aware of these like vaccinations um, provided by the NHS and how can they get this information, making sure that they have the right information as well? Because, you know, in an age of, of fake news and, and yeah, there's so much fake news out yeah, there that, you know, could you elaborate on how can they get this uh, correct information? Yeah, I mean, really good point. I mean, the, the amount of kind of fake videos that have actually been passed on to me through WhatsApp and social media, uh, et cetera. I, th I think it can be really confusing to mm. work out which one, uh, which ones are true and which ones are not. I mean, what I would say is that going on to the NHS website, going on to, um, uh, you, you know, the uh, public health website uh, in the, so if you type in NHS vaccination, it will go through the schedule and the, you know, the positives of having vaccinations, but also, uh, you know, what the side effects, because all vaccinations have side effects and they're normally short-lived. They might, you might feel a bit under the weather for a day or two. So it's important to know about that. Um, so NHS website is, is the best source. Um, and then also asking your local pharmacist or uh, a GP, or actually if it comes to the COVID vaccine and you still not had a dose, actually going into a vaccination centre, and there's plenty of them, you can look online and, and type in uh, vaccination centre local to me on, on the NHS, uh, on your um, search engine. Um, and you can actually go in for a conversation about the COVID vaccine. So there's no need to necessarily even commit to having it. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you've got questions, um, we're here uh, at the vaccine centres to answer those. Um, and, you know, we're not going to insist that you have the vaccine. We just want to make sure that people have that balanced information mm -hmm. to counteract some of the, uh, you know, videos, etc., and the posts that we're seeing on social media. And yeah, the conspiracies that uh, surround the vaccination. Yeah. So, yeah, moving on to long COVID. I mean, what's your opinion of long COVID? I mean, uh, you know, this this post-COVID syndrome is where symptoms, you know, continue for longer than 12 weeks and can't be explained by any other condition. So it's almost like uh, we, we were prefacing this at the beginning of this topic that uh, it's, it's, it's so vague uh, in a sense. There's no definitive 
from from I suppose a patient or from a listener, you know, myself and the listener's point of view, there's no definitive um, explanation, right, of of what long COVID is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're still continuing to learn about long COVID. I mean, relatively, COVID is still um, a new disease, even though it feels like you know spent mm. most of our lives having restrictions and going <laughs> In lockdown, around. most probably. <laughs> Nothing else to think yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, but in the grand scheme of things, long COVID is still a relatively new disease. What we know is that um, it affects, on, on average, sort of one in 10 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's where, exactly as you say, the symptoms last for more than 12 weeks. And it can be a mixture of fatigue, shortness of breath, tiredness, and this brain fog. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people describe um, and actually you know I've got patients in my surgery that were previously fit and well in their 30s and 40s that nine months on from having COVID still have these ongoing symptoms and there's various theories as to why long COVID exists and one of the theories is that it's um, that the virus is it attacks lots of different organs and, mm-hmm. and tissues in the body and it does this by creating blood clots Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's been some evidence that actually those people with long COVID have got these very tiny uh, blood clots that still persist in the lungs or the brain, for example, that cause the mental fog or the breathing symptoms. And that's, it, again, being researched um, a, a, a great deal at the moment. Um, but actually, what we do know is that, A, First of all, the best prevention for this is to be vaccinated because actually we know that although being vaccinated doesn't protect you from necessarily get, from getting COVID, it reduces the severity uh, of the symptoms. And so it's less likely that you have severe symptoms and therefore you're less likely to have long COVID. So whereas if you were vaccinated um, and catch COVID, you might only feel unwell for a day or two. And mm-hmm. that certainly was the case when, when I was vaccinated. I did end up getting uh, Omicron over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was unwell for a day or so. Had I not been vaccinated, you know, that might have been 10 days and I might have ended up with long COVID symptoms. So really prevention is better than cure. So getting all your COVID vaccinations up to date is really important. But, and then secondly, sorry. No, sorry, sorry, no, no, carry on, carry on. No, I was going to say the other the other point is that if you have if you're missing some COVID doses, say if you've had your first one mm-hmm. and then you ended up getting COVID and now you have long COVID symptoms, um, there is some limited evidence that actually completing the course of the vaccination, so having the three doses and then a booster, actually does improve the symptoms of long COVID in some people. Mm-hmm. Again, being researched at the moment, so the the key point being don't let long COVID put you off from getting your complete course of vaccinations because uh, there is some evidence that actually it might help uh, the, the symptoms. Mm. So, yeah, as a, as a question directly to you, because you've had your vaccines and then you caught Omicron, have you exhibited long COVID symptoms subsequently? Luckily, no, I haven't. And mm. um, I think that's that's the learning from those people that did have because i'd had my two primary doses and then i had my booster vaccination as well um and i think the the evidence shows that actually if you've had those three doses and then you end up getting covid you're much less likely to end up with long covid symptoms because it's often related to the severity of the disease Mm -hmm. and we know that the primary aim of the vaccination um although we want 
stop people from getting COVID altogether. Actually, the main reason why we want people to get vaccinated is so that you are less likely to get severe disease. So in that first and second wave where people were getting going straight into ITU and then unfortunately dying in some cases, mm. um, that's what we want to try and prevent. We want to prevent admissions, we want to prevent ITU admissions, and we want to prevent death. Mm. And if you look at the evidence, actually, we are unfortunately still seeing people dying of COVID, but it's much less than it was in the first and second wave, and that's because we pr- protected and our older residents mm, and the more vulnerable I suppose having, exactly so actually if you look at the death rate compared to the first and second wave um, it's much lower and that's because of the power of the vaccination program mm. and so you know you said one, one of the theories regarding long covid or the existence of long covid is uh, a, you know that the virus affecting or you know uh, people with blood clots uh, I was reading another a study saying that uh, another theory was that uh, like uh, the herpes um, virus, that it actually lies dormant uh, within you know the body of a patient or the body of a, a person. And re, I suppose when, when your vaccination levels uh, or your immunity levels aren't that high, it peaks again. Is that another possible uh, theory? Mm. I mean, generally what we're finding is that Apart from in a minority of people, actually, people clear COVID within ten days. So, mm-hmm. um, and and then, but the the key thing is that actually, even if you clear the virus, you can still get long COVID. So it's not necessarily you're reactivating the virus. It's something about your immune response to the virus in mm-hmm. the first place, um, where your body goes into overdrive and obviously deals with the virus, but then that immune response, even though the virus isn't there anymore, still triggers as if it's, you know, it's still present. Um, And that's also, you know, one of the mechanisms by which long COVID um, continues. And again, you know, we'll probably know more about it in the next six to 12 months about what exactly those mechanisms are. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, actually, if you are vaccinated, then you are more likely to clear the virus, even if you do end up catching COVID. Right, and so why do you think some people may want to class long COVID as a disability? Because I think that the, certainly talking to a couple of patients in my practice, I think they are very debilitated by uh, some of the symptoms. So this, so for example, if you're a teacher or, um, you know, or any kind of job and you keep having brain fog, um, you're not able to function. So disability, I guess, is related to function as mm-hmm. opposed to severity mm-hmm. of, of of the disease. And actually, if you're not able to function in your job uh, or in your activities of daily living, so whether that's washing, dressing, because you get too short of breath whilst trying to put your socks on, for example, which also I've come across with people with long COVID, then that's where uh, people feel that it should be classified as a disability because your normal function the uh, days, uh, the activities of daily living are not able to um, happen anymore. And you know, walking, for example, you walk for a couple of minutes before you should get short of breath. So that's why I, I think this um, again, it's you know, it's it's a new disease, but I think it is it's variable. And for some people, it's really debilitated them and really changed their life. Mm. their lives unfortunately mm. so yeah what can someone who's who actually is experiencing um covid symptoms 
in the long term do to get more help? Uh, do they just approach their GP? Is there a more of a, uh, I've, I've heard of clinics specifically dealing with long COVID. What, what do they do? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So because the NHS has recognised that long COVID is, is a huge burden to both patients and, and you know, society, they've, we've invested around £224 million already to support people with long COVID. So there's 90 specialists um, across, specialist services uh, across the UK and some paediatrics with children's hubs uh, as well for those children that, that are being affected by long COVID. So if you are suffering with those symptoms, and that is symptoms that go on for more than 12 weeks, you can actually um, you speak to your GP, but there's also um, a platform, an online platform called Your COVID Recovery, mm-hmm. which you can just search for in your search engine. Um, and that's got a lot of information um, that you can read through about long COVID um, and, and, and find out you know, what the actual theories, as I've mentioned, are. And also actually, how do you manage some of the day-to-day function uh, that are, if you are breathless, takes to try and help that or if you are feeling very tired um, and what kind of support is uh, available in your area. So, yeah, certainly speak to your GP and look for your COVID recovery platform uh, on your search engine. Mm, Excellent. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Dr. Tassin Khan. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk I was just getting a bit of brain fog there. <laughs> Couldn't even read dot, dot, dot .uk. Um, but I, I think we've got an Insta story, right, yep. Yeah, uh, regarding this. Yeah, we've been um, asking everyone, you know, because uh, everyone has their own experience, mm-hmm. how, how many times have you had COVID? And a lot of you have responded... Um, Someone said never. Um, a few people actually have have never had it, thankfully. And uh, Alida Janet has, has has had it um, twice. Uh, Hamid again zero. Quite a few. Um, on average, it looks like once or twice, and mm. and a lot of zeros actually. Yeah, a lot of zeros. I'm looking, and then the most interesting, psychop doesn't exist. So there's always one. There's, there's always, always one. one in in the pack there. <laughs> Um, and hopefully that person who uh, posted that on, uh, on our Insta story will actually go to uh, an NHS clinic just because that's the thing. Yeah, uh, We want you to be, uh, as our listeners, um, armed with the correct information yeah. uh, and to make an, uh, an educated choice as to whether you take the vaccination or not. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, in our community, our community uh, vice uh, from His Holiness, Mr. Mazra Ahmed, uh, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is to follow NHS guidance and to take those vaccinations and boosters. Um, and, you know, just as Tassin uh, has said, you know, Dr. Tassin Khan, it's better, you know, prevention is better than cure. Yeah, and, and I really liked how it, it's it's not a matter of you going there and you being forced to take it or you even having to do it. It's you can just go there and get information. Just, yeah, just go to the right sources. Mm-hmm. Like you know, make sure that the information you are consuming is verified. Mm. Because like nowadays, yeah, we get yeah everything in terms of news, uh, whether it be political news, whether it be about COVID, anything. I suppose yeah, people don't seem to have. 
uh, from my point of view, the time to look into it. And it has to be bite-sized. And so social media is that platform or any form of social media is that vehicle to enable that. And there's no regulation, right? Twitter, uh, luckily, I I, I hear uh, Mr. Elon Musk has kind of like uh, withdrawn his his bid now, Mm. which is most probably a good thing uh, overall. But, um, yeah, somewhere like Twitter where it's inhabited by echo chambers of people who have the same opinions and there's no verifying um, resources in in such because you can just put something out on Twitter and according to how many people follow you that then is regurgitated out into you know the the void uh, which is social media and then that becomes truth definitely and you mentioned echo chambers right like so the the platforms they want to keep you on there because you know that's why they exist they Mm -hmm. want you're going to buy more things you're going to make them more money by being on there so when you like something or engage with something uh, they're more likely to regurgitate more things like that so Mm -hmm. you you build that echo chamber for yourself and yeah i I think just having the correct information is is very difficult and as you said people want it instantly but it's talking to experts is taking the time to research is the only Mm -hmm. way that you can have that true information Mm -hmm. you know a lot of work goes into into these shows even like to make sure that we have the right information uh, and verified sources yeah Yeah. so um no it's it's definitely um it was really helpful from dr to to give us that advice as well so if we look at uh so you know fully look at covid and let's look at some of the uh some of the stats you know, attributed now uh, for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, wh- what is long COVID? Right, mm-hmm. I think I think we should start there. Like yeah. post post COVID nineteen syndrome or long COVID is when a coronavirus infection continues to cause symptoms even after the infection has left the body. So, for most people, um, a COVID infection should be recoverable within twelve weeks, and uh, at most, with many people feeling better within just a few days. I remember myself; I, I went through about three days with it. Mm-hmm. Um, the chance of experiencing longer-lasting symptoms, however, is not linked to how ill you were to begin with. Even mild COVID infections seem to be resulting in more cases on long COVID. So depending on how long you have ongoing symptoms for, it can be referred to as one of two things. Mm -hmm. Those are ongoing symptomatic COVID, where symptoms continue for more than four weeks, but no longer than 12 weeks, um, or post-COVID syndrome, where where syndromes continue for longer than 12 weeks and cannot be explained by any other condition. Hmm. So as of May the 1st of this year, 2022, the ONS reported that 2 million uh, or 3.1% of the population reported experiencing COVID symptoms more than four weeks after their first infection. Now, about two in five of those with long COVID reported that their infection being at least a year ago and one in five saying it was at least two years ago. So it's not as if this is a, a you know, it's a kind of, you know, just a storm in a teacup, mm. right? This is a definite thing. Uh, severity of symptoms can vary, with 71% saying long COVID symptoms had a negative impact on day-to-day activities and 20, 20% said that their ability to undertake such activities had been limited a lot. And hence, I suppose, the tribunal, the employment tribunal's um, 
finding in the uh, in in the favour of the claimant regarding uh, or quoting long COVID symptoms as a disability. Um, I mean, COVID, common COVID symptoms uh, are you know have a vast range, mm. and these include respiratory and cardiovascular symptoms. They could be as simple as a cough, breathlessness, chest tightness and pains, uh, generalized um, symptoms such as fatigue, fever and pain, neurological symptoms, brain fog, I uh, underscore that one, headaches, insomnia and dizziness, uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, a weight loss, muscle uh, musculoskeletal symptoms as in joint pains, muscle pains, psychological, psychiatric problems as in depression and anxiety, uh, ear, nose and throat symptoms, uh, whether it be an earache, sore throat, loss of taste or smell, and even dermatological uh, symptoms such as skin rashes. So there's a whole plethora of symptoms yeah. and not necessarily you have to have all those symptoms. It could be just one or two. It could yeah. be um, you know, a combination of all those. So the problem, however, with such a wide range of symptoms is that getting a formal diagnosis uh, regarding long COVID. And GPs may have uh, to run a series of tests to rule out other things uh, which b could be causing those symptoms such, and those tests you know, range from blood tests uh, to x-rays. Now, according to the NHS, there's no set treatment for long COVID. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's been borne out by our uh, guest, uh, Dr. Tassine Khan. Now, doctors are guided to ask you about the support that you need and advise how to manage and monitor symptoms at home and then maybe refer you to a specialist rehabilitation service for your specific symptoms. Yeah, and referrals to the specialist clinics are made based on pers a person's ongoing symptoms and you know the impact on their life uh, they're not actually based on the severity of the initial illness or on a positive test result um, in t december 2020 nhs england announced the launch of post-covid clinics bringing together a wide range of healthcare professionals including doctors nurses psychological and occupational therapists the aim of these clinics is to bring a more holistic diagnostic picture of long COVID. Mm. So I suppose, you know, that's exactly in line with what uh, Tassim was telling us. Mm. That it's so it's it's not like like you said, you know, one size fits all. Yeah. And the problem is that it is you know you you might actually disregard having that tickly cough um, as being you know uh, Just, a COVID. Yeah. Or a symptom, or, or you having long COVID, but if that cough keeps on remaining, you know, weeks, twelve weeks after yeah. uh, you've actually had COVID, then you know our advice uh, is to actually go and seek, um, you know, seek, you know, go to your GP. Definitely, I think you know with how busy life is as well these days, I think it's very easy to just forget these things. It's just like you know all. Um, or as, discount uh, them right, as being as being trivial. Exactly trivial, yeah. and and because the thing is, is that um, I think it's about awareness. I think mm -hmm. making sure that you're more aware of how your body is feeling. Uh, okay, how long has that cough been? Mm -hmm. If it's just been a couple of days, yeah. But start to make sure that hey, actually, this has been around for a few days. But like, mm -hmm. be more aware. Mm -hmm. I think is is the best way to. to mm -hmm. kind and of I understand. don't know about you, Fahim. Yeah, I. I 
I'm a typical male. I'm not saying you're not a typical male, <laughs> but in in sense of like going to the GP, right? Usually I will just like, ah, forget it. Yeah. You know, I, I totally hear you. You, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm not kind of like hobbling, or I'm on death's doorstep. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point? I'm yeah. only going to go there. I'll be waiting, and what they're going to give me? Yeah. Two paracetamol. Yeah. I've got that at home. Exactly. So you know, don't take my uh, example as yeah. being your rule of thumb. You know, I advise all listeners. Um, although I don't take that advice myself, but I do advise all listeners that if you do have these symptoms and you have had COVID um, and you've recovered from COVID and you do have you know these symptoms that we've listed or I've listed prior, prior uh, you know, seek medical assistance, seek kind of guidance from, from the professionals, go to your GP. Now, in terms of Islam, how does you know, Islam view disabilities? Yeah, as as long COVID is is still a relatively new condition, the problem many sufferers are facing is is having the illness recognised as as a form of disability, which may prevent you know you performing daily tasks or maintaining steady employment, um, and and you know all forms of illness can and can take a toll on a person, especially when it's difficult for others to to see, um, and emphasise your struggles, um. I've, I always think of, um, you know, I think I really hurt my leg one day and I, I was sitting down and I, on the tube and it's like, uh, people don't understand that my leg's really hurting. I'm not just sitting down because <laughs> because no, I'm being lazy. You, you, no, no, you, you got some dirty stairs, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, You're like, why are you getting exactly, up for that old lady? Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so sometimes it, it's difficult when, when things aren't, uh, you know, visible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and there's a verse in the Holy Quran that says, Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity um, it shall have the reward it earns and it shall get the punishment it incurs mm. so that's chapter 2 verse 287 and and this verse really reminds Muslims that God will personally try and challenge an individual but only because God knows that he they can actually handle it and that difficulties in this life may lead to a reward or salvation in the next so as a society however islam um, promotes taking care of one another especially those who aren't as capable of taking care of themselves and in the holy quran it is stated that and worship allah and associate naught with him and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and the needy and to the neighbor that is a kinsman and the neighbor that is a stranger and the companion by your side, and the wayfarer, and those whom your right hand possesses. Surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. And that's chapter 4, verse 37. Mm. And to speak more about long COVID, um, we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, Michael McClellan, uh, uh, who is, well, he works for COVID Aid, and COVID Aid is the UK's leading national charity dedicated to supporting all those significantly affected by COVID-19 and it is here for people throughout the pandemic and has supported more than 130,000 people on issues including long COVID, grief and bereavement and pandemic related trauma. Uh, Peace and blessings be upon you Michael. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And so we're talking about long COVID, Michael. So can you tell us about 
your charity and the work that you are doing. I mean, 130-odd thousand people that you've helped so far must be very grateful. Yeah, certainly. And uh, so COVID-Aid itself has uh, existed since May last year. So that's almost within a year. And that really speaks to the impact mm-hmm. that people are still experiencing as a result of COVID-19. And right now, the primary audience for us are those experiencing long COVID and those who have experienced grief and bereavement, both of which can be life-altering and you know, enormously significant for people and, and loved ones around them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, we're talking about long COVID and how it's affected. So, you know, what percent, I mean, do you have kind of like some figures in terms of, you know, those that come to your charity? Uh, are the majority of them, uh, you know, kind of being affected long COVID, by long COVID? Yeah, well, we know that according to the Office of National Statistics that more than 2 million people across the UK are now living with long COVID and have experienced symptoms lasting more than 12 weeks, which is an enormous number of people. And there's different ends of that. Some of that may be milder symptoms where you're not too sure quite what that is. But at the other end, it can be enormously debilitating and really prevent you from working, affect your quality of life and... and had put people into radically different paths than they were on before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we had a, a, a doctor on, uh, Tassin Khan, talking about the symptoms of long COVID and, you know, how it has affected, you know, a lot of his patients who've come in and he's seen them prior to actually um, catching COVID and then, you know, them not really being able to get back to their normal routines and stuff. I mean, you know, how, you know, what percent, I say, you know, is there that kind of trauma, that mental trauma for a lot of the people that approach your, your charity? Yeah, certainly. And I think one of the things that's so alarming about it is the variety of, of ways in which people have experienced it and the variety of backgrounds as well. It really has hit everybody. So people who come to us... Uh, can be anybody from uh, younger to older people. It can be people who run marathons, uh, who have been very physically active, and it can also be people who have experienced other hidden disabilities and chronic illnesses like ME, for example, mm-hmm. and then they're doubly affected and, and have a really debilitating experience. So, uh, yeah, the, as, as a disease and as something that hasn't been around for too long, it can be hard to know quite who it's going to hit and sometimes it may not be the people that you expect and I think sometimes people may think that they're more prepared but that's not always uh, how it works. Mm. Yeah and you know we mentioned at the beginning of our show uh, about the ruling um, and so we're interesting to know, uh, interesting to know like what do you think about long COVID being considered a disability? Well, I, I think we are now a community of over 800 people who are involved with the charity. Mm. Um, and we've obviously reached over, I think, now over 140,000 because the number we reach grows mm. enormously every day. Um, and in terms of it being disability, we see here, you know, many members of the and volunteers from the charity have been, you know, severely affected to the points where they're no longer able to to work mm-hmm. to uh, maintain the life that they had before to you know things like child care can be a real struggle 
Um, so in terms of it being considered a disability, I think it's certainly something that has been that for, for you know, thousands and thousands of people across the country. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely a disability and should be recognised as such. Mm. So, Michael, you know, what do you think uh, if someone were uh, experiencing COVID, uh, COVID symptoms in the long term and had what they would presume to be long COVID, you know, what can they do to get more help? Yeah, certainly. So I think one of the things is to access, and I, I think your previous guest talked about this in terms of NHS services, uh, speaking to your GP. Um, I, I know that with long COVID, as a new uh, disease and illness, there has been issues around sometimes GPs, other medical staff not knowing so much about long COVID, but I think that's something that is improving. Um, so I would say to approach your health practitioner and then us at COVIDAID, uh, we have a variety of resources. So if when people come to us, then we look to point them in the right direction. We have a very strong support community, which I spoke about. We have expert resources, Q&As, courses, and other things to help people across symptoms such as fatigue, uh, breathlessness, uh, smell disorders, and a lot of the other issues that are some of the most common for long COVID. Mm. I mean, do you think that you know now it's bit, or now that this uh, employment tribunal has ruled in favour of I think it was Richard Burke, yeah, um, that uh, he had lost his job uh, and citing long COVID as being a, a disability now, and that he could you know actually take his his employers to to uh, employment tribunal regarding this. Uh, do you think? that you know now that it's being classed as a a disability you know because you can't really see it does it have that i suppose um similarity to having a disability like a mental disability because you can't visibly see someone suffering Mm. right um with long covid although it might manifest itself in some physical limitations with shortness of breath uh, as you know, as as one of the symptoms, but would it be likened to something like a mental disability now? Well, I, I think it's very important to say that with long COVID, there is a variety of physical symptoms that people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think there are millions of people across the UK who have been living since before the pandemic with hidden illnesses such as ME, such as fibromyalgia, and um, like those people, I, I think there's a lot of uh, difficulty for people that when everything seems uh, like they appear like they did before, but their lives have been dramatically altered, it creates a, 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 you know, a massive burden in itself about how to talk about those issues with loved ones, mm-hmm. how to receive the right style of support, and sometimes how people will treat you um, disbelievingly despite the fact that you are experiencing these symptoms in a very real very tangible uh way mm-hmm. yeah because i mean it could be that uh yeah I, I cited some of the symptoms earlier on i'm not sure if you were listening to the show at that point but uh, in terms of uh you know psychological psychiatric problems where you get depression and anxiety um yeah, they they shouldn't be, I suppose, uh, belittled in terms of symptoms compared to more of a, a physical symptom, because you know we've all well, you know, for those of us who have suffered from depression, it it is debilitating, 
uh, you know, lacking the will to do anything and not really knowing why you don't have that motivation inside you. And to actually, I suppose, in a sense, uh, for a you know, someone who has suffered it, um, would, I suppose, actually give them um, some concrete, um, I suppose, affirmation that actually it isn't themselves, hmm. uh, that actually it's a symptom of uh, a virus of which I've caught. And then, therefore, once you know that actually the reason for how you're feeling, whether it be um, psychological or physiological, is down to something that actually is out, out of your control. You caught it anyway. So that must be reassuring in some, some way, shape or form. Well, I, I think it's important for us. We uh, recently uh, had a joint Q&A with the mental health charity Mind. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we are a broader charity around COVID-19 is the recognition that through issues, including long COVID, but also grief and bereavement, trauma, that uh, mental well-being has been severely impacted for many, many people across the country and across the world, of course. Um, and I definitely would agree that, you know, I think one of the things is since the pandemic started, uh, there has been more of an ability in, in some ways to speak about mental well-being and about the importance of it and about the fact that many of us will experience issues, especially during such a surreal and traumatic experience as a pandemic and some of the issues and illness and disease that that has caused. So I, I do think that it's, there's a communal aspect around um, experiencing such things and, and ways that can be supportive, you know, especially around peer support and speaking to each other and being able to note the similar experiences, which is something that us as a charity are very keen to ensure that people can come to us and then find other people who've had the same sort of issues, uh, whether recently or currently. Mm, because I suppose uh, when you when you say communal experience, because we were all, say, for instance, if you're in the UK at the beginning of COVID, uh, beginning of the pandemic, everyone was in lockdown. So, you know, that's one thing that we can empathize with, even though, say, for instance, those of us who weren't, you know, didn't catch COVID and then subsequently had long COVID can sympathize with. Yeah, and no, I think I think that if is very important for us is that everybody in a sense has been significantly affected by COVID-19 so everybody has a similar experience in mm -hmm. a sense but then the stories are all very unique so what we want to do as a charity is be able to reach out to everybody and then through the um, connection then be able to reach out and, and share those stories that are different in certain ways and, and um, look to provide that sort of empathy which mm -hmm. is something i think is very important because particularly around COVID 19 at the moment some people and sometimes understandably don't realize quite how significantly people are still being currently impacted mm -hmm. especially through long COVID. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly well michael uh thank you uh, it's been pl a pleasure speaking to you uh this afternoon thank you for joining us on the drive time show thank you very much thank you uh have a good day 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk and you know just yeah we've got a couple of minutes left on the show um you know in terms of long covid you know as a society we should do what we can to support those 
who are going through a tough time handling their condition, which could come in the form of recognizing it as a disability and providing appropriate help, uh, such as financial uh, or physical therapy and mental health support. Furthermore, historically, there have been many instances which prove that one disability in a person does not reduce their value or worth in the eyes of God Almighty. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's just important to, to remember that, um, you know, people have their own issues going on and, you know, you shouldn't judge them uh, or assume you know what's going on or what's happening with someone as an individual, right? You can you can sit there and be like, oh, that, I gave you the example of me on the train, right? People mm-hmm. could, people just say, looking at me saying, why am I getting up? <laughs> but they don't know what I'm going through. And I think that, yeah. uh, as, as, as Michael said, um, and, and you were saying that everybody's been impacted by COVID in some sort of way. Um, and, and everyone's story is different and it differing very uh, differing differing levels of severity mm-hmm. um, so just being more understanding and and, mm. and realizing that is, is important and I think I can underline that uh, with this uh, this verse of the Holy Quran and this is a uh, verse 11 from chapter 49 surely all believers are brothers so make peace between brothers and fear Allah that mercy may be shown to you mm. so uh, with that you know as as Muslims you know we should do all that we can to help those who may be suffering from any illness or struggle mm. and you know I suppose that that underlines it, it fully uh, for you know that that thing because you know, sometimes we just don't see what someone else is going through even mm. though they might be tired on the tube yeah <laughs> No, definitely, and and it's it's just important, and and I think that verse really sums it up. That mm-hmm. just make peace and and you know care for one another, and um, just be more mindful of others. Mm, exactly. So with that, we're going to end the show. Uh, thank you to our listeners out there. Thank you to our producers, Noah Saba, uh, Hafia Zafar, and uh, Fahana Khan. Thank you to our backroom staff, our technician, uh, Zishan. Thank you very much for my co-host. Fahim Nasser. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. It's yeah, been a pleasure. Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, pre- presenting with you. Uh, thank you to everyone who are listeners out there uh, as, as we bring you up to the six o'clock news.